there are books and stuff written about how things we put in our lives influence us. So art can remind us of where we've come from. And it can also help us think of the kind of people we want to be. It simultaneously can remind us of our roots, but then also our hope from the future and then help us realize how we want to grow and change today. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Okay, so here we are. It's another season already. The winter solstice is next Wednesday, December 21st. And like every new season, we are launching all new content and things in the Almanac with a new theme. And I really like the theme that you came up with for this next season, Mom. Do you want to tell everyone about it? Yeah, I really, really love this one. Our winter theme this year is Wander. And I just love the idea of wandering, of kind of freeing your mind up and letting go of schedules and to-do lists. And I try to take a walk every day outside and do a bit of wandering around in my environment. And I also like to embrace the idea of wandering in my daily life, giving myself a little slow living space to pick and choose how to get through the day. I associate that with wandering as well. Yeah, wandering is so wonderful. And I think that a lot of times can feel aimless or like it doesn't do anything. But I think it's like the ultimate slow living activity. And it's really wonderful to be able to make space for it. Yeah. And I think sometimes we're inclined to think of wandering as as lost. Right. You know, there's that expression, all who wander are not lost. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Whoever wrote it, if you're listening. Let us know so we can give you credit. But I'm sure they're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Isn't everybody listening? I love that thought because I think wandering is good for us. It's it's good to let go of our agendas. It's good to let go of our schedules when we can. Yeah. And it's beautiful how winter allows for that, I think. Yeah, I think winter is especially appropriate season for that because there is that sense of reflection of inner interior awareness and contemplation, reflection, all of that. And I just think that's a really perfect stage setting for wandering. I'm excited. I can't wait to wander with you and all of you this winter. Yeah. So to kick it off, we are going to be having a open to everyone, a wreath-making workshop. And our wreath workshops are maybe a little different from a wreath workshop you may have been to. It's also virtual, which actually works really well for us in our community. 
And we'll begin with a directive to forage our wreath materials. And we'll be sending you more information about that if you sign up to join us. And again, this event is on Sunday, December 18th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And it is open to everyone and it is free, which is really fun. And if you sign up, then you get a free week in the almanac to try it out. So that is our gift to you. Happy holidays, happy wandering season. And we'd love to meet you inside almanac and at the wreath event and then hopefully have you join us for the rest of the slow living season. Yeah, and that free week you get will include the week of our winter launch. So it gives you a peek into how it works and some things that will be happening. Definitely. So speaking of the seasons, our guest today is an artist whose work reflects seasons and seasonal themes, which you know we love here on the Good Dirt Podcast. Krista Norman is a fine artist living in Orange County, California, who draws with light and explores seasons of the human experience. Her work focuses on simplicity and surrender through the photographic medium of cyanotype. Krista creates floral artwork with flowers grown in her own garden and conceptual collections inspired by her personal seasons. We ended up covering a number of topics in this interview, including the dilemma that comes up so often in our conversations regarding the conflict between pursuing our creative passions and making a living. This is such a common theme for creatives in our current economic system. And I thought it was especially interesting when Krista pointed out that one of our fundamental roles as humans is to be creators of things. But to a certain extent, we've forgotten that role and we've defaulted into our role as consumers. So what does that do to us as individuals and how does that affect our culture as a whole is also interesting. Yeah, we're so happy to bring you this engaging discussion with this fine artist, Kristen Norman. And we'll let her take it from here. I am Krista Norman. I am a fine artist and my work explores the seasons of the human experience using a medium called cyanotype. It's an alternative photography process. Since it's a photography process, I got started not with alternative process, which is like a whole niche thing that most people don't know about. But I got started with traditional photography as a teenager. I got a point and shoot when I was 15 and just fell in love with photography and was obsessed shooting everything you could possibly imagine, doing photo shoots with my photography friends, creating different scenes. And looking back now, I think that there are a couple things that really stood out to me about photography that I love so much. And the first one is photography really makes you have to be present in the moment. Thinking back to like football games or all the things I was photographing that are not really considered artistic. What I loved was just being so present in that moment and trying to capture the beauty that's in that moment. Even if it's a football player, a couple shoot a tackle or something, you know, you wouldn't think that's beautiful. But that was something so fascinating and just magical to me. So I knew like right away when I was 17, I was like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. So then I went to school and I studied fine art photography. And I loved my program. It was so good. But for some reason, I kind of had this impression that artists can't really make a living. <laughs> I don't think my program taught me that. But I remember leaving with the impression that like, 
I can't make money being an artist, even though I love my fine art program. I loved all of the conceptual work that we were doing there. I just didn't think that I could make a living doing that. And so I went into wedding photography. I graduated from college and quickly fell into that world. And it was really encouraging to me to see like, oh, people can make a living doing this. So I got into wedding photography and really enjoyed it and thought it was so fun and also just like a really intimate experience. The photographer on a wedding day is with the bride and groom more than anybody else, like Mm -hmm. more than the planner, more than their parents. So it's like this really intimate, beautiful experience that the photographer can take them through their day and really like change how they perceive it. And so I took that honor really seriously and thought that was really beautiful. However, (laughs) being a wedding photographer or a photographer in general, that experience and actually doing photography is maybe 10% of your job. (laughs) Yes. You guys probably know like a lot of editing goes into podcasts and all that, but just like most of your time as a photographer, you're sitting in front of a desk not interacting with people and you're editing or you're doing emails or you're marketing. So I kind of quickly realized this is different than I expected. And at this point, like after I graduated college, I got married pretty soon afterwards. And then six months after getting married, I went out on my own and was like, I have a photography business. And it's a lot of pressure to then have like your, your dream and your passion have to help support you. But then also, I just didn't know how to work from home. I just felt terrible. I think there was literally one day I was like, feel so awful. And then I realized I hadn't gone outside in three days. Oh my gosh. I was like, wait, something needs to change, right? I don't know what's happening. I'm still enjoying photography, but like something's off. So I love this story. And what you're saying about having to embrace the fact that you dream from earlier in your life, uh, your younger person's dream wasn't fitting you anymore. I think that's really interesting. I think that takes a lot of courage and honesty to kind of embrace that. It's really interesting because my journey as an artist and a photographer is intimately tied with my slow living, low waste journey, which is really interesting thinking back on because it was really at the same time that a couple things happened. I watched the documentary Cook Have you guys watched that? Michael Pollan? Is it the four-part one? That's like, yes. yes. I haven't watched all of them. I think I remember watching Fire Mm -hmm. and maybe Air. It's that one, right? Yes. Like Fire, Water, Air. Yeah. Yeah. I've watched a couple of them. So good. So good. It takes one element at a time and they talk about an indigenous culture that uses that element Mm -hmm. and then focus on a different food group. It's just fascinating. But through that... I really learned more about the food industry (laughs) and just what they're putting into food. And maybe they don't really have our best interest at heart. And the bread episode specifically, I like so in love with the idea of making bread. And it just (laughs) stirred this thing in me to work with my hands. Photography is wonderful, but digital photography is not tangible. (laughs) Right. Most of the time. So I was just like, oh, I think this is something that I've been missing. So that watching this documentary really stirred that in me. At the same time, my mom had bought me a bunch of plants to put on our balcony. I had actually grown up gardening with her. She had a beautiful backyard. It's got so many flowers and it's just magical. And so growing up, I would help her in the yard. And so one day I was repotting things 
and just smell of the soil and having the dirt, like literally having my hands in the dirt. I just was like, what am I doing? (laughs) I need more of this. And so those two things really kind of like sparked a change in me wanting to find healthy rhythms and like, yeah, just working working with my hands more. And so I thought that that was going to be the thing. I was like, oh, I can just kind of pursue slow living and things like that in my personal life. And then that'll make photography better. It'll be a good balance. But it turned out to not be that way. The more I got into slow living and started to make those changes in my personal life, it didn't satisfy that desire that I had. It just stoked it even more. Okay. Yeah. How did you know that it was something you were missing? I wanted to get into a slower pace of life. So then I started listening to a bunch of podcasts. And I think from all of my like trying to understand this different way of life, I pulled out certain terms like low waste and slow living. And I was a little overwhelmed by jumping in right away. But I kind of clung to those two ideas because I felt like, oh, yeah, that's it. I need to slow down. I feel like I'm going too fast and my life is just blurring by me. And I always felt like I was looking to the future of daydreaming about that and like, oh, it'll be so nice in the future, but never really being able to soak in the present. And I would look back and reflect and be like, oh, I didn't enjoy that time while I was a part of it, while Mm. it was happening. Yeah, I was just so caught up in what good with coming in the future that I didn't actually enjoy the present. So I think when I heard these terms on the podcast, I was like, yes, that's the name for the thing that I've been feeling but didn't know. Yes. I didn't know what it was. You know, I was super overwhelmed by canning or the idea of having your own livestock and slaughtering it. But then I was like, okay, what can I do? I can not use Ziploc bag. I can stop using paper towels and slowly started doing that and gardening more and substituting things and taking things one step at a time. And it was really satisfying. And I was really motivated by a more beautiful way to live. And then it was also manageable. <laughs> right. One thing at a time. It has been really cool over the course of this journey to see how far I've been able to come just doing one thing at a time and replacing one thing at a time. So I'm the busiest I've ever been in wedding photography. I'm shooting film, which was really fun, but I was realizing like it's just not quenching the desire. And I was doing a similar thing to my slow living journey where I was like, it'll be better in the future. Or what I realized during my slow living journey, I was like, oh, once I have this, It'll make photography not that bad. Or like, Mm. like, once I have these kinds of clients or these kinds of prices or associates, I'll be able to slow down and enjoy it more in the future. But I realized what the heck that means. Like, I'm not enjoying my life now. Can't be content now. And so I was like, this is a problem. (laughs) Very smart. Yeah. I have this particular memory where I was sitting at my desk. You know, I had been there probably, haven't moved for like six hours or something. But I just put my head down on my desk and cried. I was just like, this is not what I expected photography to be. When I was a teenager, I imagined being out with people and shooting and being able to be in that moment and capture beauty. And I realized this is not that. This is not what I thought it was. And at the same time, my husband and I had been thinking about doing this internship for this nonprofit in Japan. So our church is partnered with a nonprofit that's in Japan. I know you're like, how did this happen? (laughs) And my husband is a high school math teacher. And so he can take a year off of work and still have his job when he comes back. It's just like a year of personal leave. 
And so he was kind of like, what would you think? I felt like I was having like a midlife crisis, but I was 24. So I'm having a quarter-life crisis. <laughs> yeah, I've heard about that. <laughs> but it was so good. And it was all kind of triggered by this idea of moving somewhere different. Yeah. Doing something mm-hmm. different. So August 1st, 2019, we moved oh. to Japan. And it was just such a wonderful experience. We loved working for this nonprofit. I got to do a lot of photography and design and communications for them. And we were in Japanese language classes and Japan was wonderful. But at this point, I had been shooting weddings consistently for four or five years. So it's been my life for so long and just dictated the rhythms of my life for so long that I thought I'm going to miss shooting wedding. And I was like, a month after we had been there, I was like, oh, I get to stay home on the weekend. (laughs) We get to have a fun breakfast on Saturday and get to go to friends like birthday parties. I was like, this kind of nice. I was a little shocked at myself that I didn't miss it. It was so hard for me to decide, I think I'm outgrowing this dream. I thought I would be more attached to it. But Mm -hmm. six months later, I was like, oh, I don't actually miss doing this. Mm -hmm. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I really have outgrown this dream. I need to transition out of wedding photography. It Mm -hmm. is not a good fit for me anymore. So I decided I'm going to close my wedding photography business. I joined another photographer to be an associate photographer. That's a really common thing. So I jumped on board with her and I was like, great, that'll be a good transition. And then at the same time, I had ordered cyanotype chemicals and I was like, Ah. I want to try this thing called cyanotype. How did you hear about it? Yeah. So I heard about cyanotype in my fine art program because I emphasize in photography and in my photo program, we obviously took history of photography. And it was in history of photography that I learned about cyanotype because cyanotype is one of the earliest form of photography. I remember just being like, oh, this is so beautiful. This is amazing. I thought it would be cool to experiment with that because it's like the slowest tangible form of photography that you can possibly do. So before we left for Japan, I ordered chemicals and all the things that I needed for this medium. I ordered them in the summer and it was October by the time I tried my first ones. And I was like, okay, I should finally do this. And it was just like Mm -hmm. the most magical thing. Actually, now that I think about it, sorry, I'm having a little bit of an epiphany. But it had that same feeling for me as like a teenager. Yeah. That intangible thing that I just love so much about photography that brought me into the present moment. And I was able to capture the beauty of that moment. It gave me that same feeling, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it was very different because wedding photography had kind of killed my love for the medium of photography, just doing it for work so much. It just felt like work and photography itself was a little bit tainted. But then doing cyanotype, it had that same feeling for me again. And I was like, this is amazing. It was so cool. Mm -hmm. And so while we were in Japan, I just continued to practice with it and hone my skills, you know, it was a new thing that I was trying. And so I essentially just started to experiment and learn more and more about the medium until I got really comfortable with it. And so that was a really fun process. But we were in Japan, tending to be there for a year. We were tending to be there from August 1st, 2019 to July 2020. Mm-hmm. And that uh, was the first thing that happened. So it was like, Mid-February, you couldn't find a ma- buy a mask anywhere. Mm-hmm. There was no toilet paper. And it's kind of like, okay, this is interesting. And then like we saw Korea get some of their big cities be quarantined and nobody could leave. 
And we were living in a big city. And so we were kind of like, oh, this is interesting. We're obviously unsure about what was going to happen. And at the same time, we found out that my dad was sick, but we didn't know like how sick he was. And so we're like, you know what? Let's just go visit home for a couple of weeks and we'll just see what happens. And so, you know, we had round trip tickets and we came home wow. large first. We oh my gosh. Oh, tiny of that. And then obviously the world shut down. And then my dad was, was really sick. And so we we're glad that we had come home. But then we were like weirdly displaced. We didn't have a home anymore here at home. We we're living yeah. with uh, my husband's parents. But all of our things were still in Japan. We didn't move. We thought we were going back. And so like our apartment was still there. We didn't say goodbye to anybody. We found out my dad was sick on a Tuesday. Thursday, we decided we were going to leave. Friday, Saturday, we packed. And Sunday, we flew home. And then we were home, but then like we couldn't see anyone and we couldn't like go and do the things that make home feel like home. And so it was really, really strange. And then also at the same time, right, I lost my ability to make income with photography. And at that point, I was not expecting to start offering my cyanotypes to be sold for like a long time because I was like, they're not good enough yet. Right. I've only been doing this for six months at that point. And so I wasn't expecting to do that. But then I was like, well, what can I do? What can I do with what I have? <laughs> and I was like, I can make cyanotypes. And so I started selling them and people were really, really interested in it. And I started sharing the process more. And I think like, yeah, just the, my small following at the time fell in love with the medium as much as I had. And so then it just kind of evolved from there. So yeah, having everything shut down during COVID lit that fire under me to start cyanotyping. And then that's all I could do. So I was able to really focus on that. Oh, wow. And you had positioned yourself so exquisitely without even knowing it. That story is kind of amazing how everything just sort of played out and fell into place. And then here you are, a cyanotype artist and your own niche. And you discovered something you loved. And it's amazing. Tell us a a little bit about the process and what your process is. And what's that like? Yeah, so the process is just so amazing and beautiful. It's hard to understand, so I'll I'll break it down for you. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. 
Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. So, cyanotype is a cameraless contact photography. So that just means there's no camera when you take a picture and whatever you're taking a picture of has to be touching the paper. So you take these two chemicals and you mix them together and they become sensitive to light, meaning they just change when they are taken out into the sunlight. So in the dark, you mix these chemicals and then you coat them or paint them onto a piece of paper. And then still in the dark, you can take whatever object that you want. I typically use flowers. So I'll take a flower and I'll put it on top of that piece of paper. And then we take that like flower and piece of paper out into the sunlight. And so where the flower is, the light doesn't pass through as much. That's like blocking the chemicals. So wherever the flower isn't, that turns blue. And wherever the flower is, that stays white. But it's not just a silhouette, right? Because light passes through objects. And so it passes through the petals and through the leaves. And it actually like captures the image. And when you wash it in water, it becomes permanent. And so that's Mm -hmm. the basic idea of cyanotype. Oh, very cool. There's this piece where you go out and you choose your objects to take a picture of, so to speak. Yeah. Go out and forage for those things or? I actually only use flowers that I grow in my garden. That's another piece of it then. Yeah. Yeah. So my slow living journey, right? I'd started like growing plants and just been so obsessed with flowers and doing those kinds of things. And when I came back from Japan, we're staying at my husband's parents and they have a yard that has sunlight. (laughs) And so I was able to start growing flowers. And a little bit before that, like everybody, I got obsessed with like Florette and uh, I got her book, her cut flower garden book and was just like, I want to be able to do that. And so when we came home from Japan, I, my in-laws were so kind and they they let me put raised garden beds in their backyard and grow flowers. I realized like, I want my garden to be as much a part of the process as the work itself, the the photography itself. And so early on, I decided I want to only use the flowers that that I grow in my garden. Oh, that's beautiful. That's very cool. It's also interesting to think about cyanotape as a type of photography, but that there's not a camera involved. That's kind of brain bendy. Yes, it is brain bending. I asked my niece recently. She's six now. Liliana, she didn't understand that a camera was different than a phone, you know, and we're kind of that way, too. We're like taking photos with our phones or even if you do have a camera, we don't understand, like, what is it that this thing is? Because the idea of a camera has existed for literal centuries. So what a camera is, is essentially just a box that has a tiny hole that allows light to pass through it. And so what happens, because the hole is so small, there are just like very, very small amounts of light passing through. And what happens is that it projects the actual image of what is outside. So if I have a huge box or a room, a room with no windows, and it has a tiny, tiny window, and then what will happen is whatever is outside will come through that hole and project on the wall. Mm -hmm. So that is the idea of what a camera is. That idea has existed for literal centuries. And people would do that. It's called camera obscura. So back in the day, they would do that. They would have literal rooms and people would either use the image projected on the wall to trace drawings, so replicate things. Or later on, there would be like theater performances outside that was projected on the wall and people would come into the room and uh, watch those theater performances. Very cool. Yeah. So that's the idea of the camera. But the issue, right, is making the image permanent. So I think it was like, 
300 BC is the earliest recorded idea of a camera. But then it wasn't until like the early 1800s that they were able to start making the image permanent because that was the issue. (laughs) There are a bunch of different ways that you could do that. The daguerreotype is what eventually transformed into the photos that we know now. Like you have a photo negative and then that prints onto a piece of paper and then that turned digital eventually. But at that time, there are lots of different ways that essentially scientists were figuring out how to make images permanent. And one of them is cyanotype. And so there's actually this really cool quote. I wrote it down because it's so beautiful. So Sir John Herschel is the man that invented the cyanotype process. But he was talking to Louis Daguerre, who invented the daguerreotype. And, you know, they're they're comparing notes and trying to figure out, how do we do this? Daguerre has this beautiful quote that I have to read to you. So he says, not merely is photography an instrument which serves to draw nature. On the contrary, it is a chemical and physical process which gives her nature the power to reproduce herself. It's so lovely. The idea that nature is actually imprinting herself on the image itself, I just think is so lovely. Rather than like, we're not like capturing her, but she is giving us a part of herself. I just think that's so cool. That is beautiful. That's so cool. That ties in so much to, you know, slow living through the seasons and being connected to nature. And it sort of gives a different perspective on our own connection with nature. Yeah. And something that you said earlier, I think like right when you were beginning your story about how you originally got into photography and you said you like how it made you feel very present, which is interesting because I love photography. I've also mm-hmm. took a, a photo class in college and that's also where I learned about cyanotype. And I think we even did some cyanotype. I remember doing it once and it was really amazing. Anyways, you said that photography made you feel very present. And I think I used to feel that way. And I have since grown weary of it because I think and I think it's different now because it's photography as it relates to social media. Mm -hmm. But I have a hard time taking photos now because I feel like it takes me out of the moment. Yeah. But I guess that's because it's sort of like, why are you taking pictures? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just my own thing. I need to get over that. It's okay to take pictures, Emma. You don't have to just be thinking about posting them. <laughs> but I do think that there's something inside me that is a little bit anti-taking photos because I want to be in the moment. So mm-hmm. I just really appreciate that perspective because it is true that being present and letting yourself observe in that way yeah, is very in the moment. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know is. if you have any feelings about that. I want to add something to that. Sometimes I go out in the garden and I'll say, I'm not going to take my phone. I'm going to be out there without my phone. And then I'm, I get out there and I see something and it's so beautiful. And I wish I had my phone to take a picture mm-hmm. of it. And so it's this kind of a tension between. I think that's kind of what you were saying, like phone and camera have become one and the same. And Yeah. yeah like I don't, want, I don't want the burden of the phone, but I do like to capture beautiful things and, you know, I see color combinations or I see details in flowers that the phone camera can do a great job of capturing them. And then I'll look back on them later and say, that's beautiful. So I don't, it's sort of a conundrum, actually. A hundred percent. I totally agree. Emma, I think you said something like, I think it really has to do with our mindset and what we've associated with photography. Because I completely Mm. felt that way. People would ask me to like, oh, can you come take photos of my baby shower? Or can you Mm. come take photos of our kids? For me, Mm. it felt like work. And I did feel like it very much took me out of the moment. And it's like, yeah. I have a gift to offer people and photos are really precious and wonderful, but it did 
especially at that time. It took me out of the moment because I associated it with work and then also with Instagram. And so I think it's like, yeah, what you said, it's like, why are we taking photos? Like Mm -hmm. if we're taking photos for Instagram, then like it's not going to keep you in the moment. But if you're, like Mary said, just out in your garden and you're just like, oh, this is so beautiful. I want Mm -hmm. to preserve this so that I can look back on it and so that I can share it with other people and for them to take the light in that beauty with you. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it is a conundrum. In the same breath. Maybe you do want to post it on Instagram later. Yeah. And yeah. sure, it can bring lots of people joy too. Oh, so, you know, there's nothing like inherently wrong with doing that, but it is interesting. It's just to me feels so like, well, I don't want to do that. No, if like, you know, social media is a thing you have to do, then it almost feels like you're bringing work into every you know, mm-hmm. your present mm-hmm. moment. And that's kind of a bummer. But I'll tell you this. I don't know if, do y'all have zinnias out there in California? Zinnias? Zinnias, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I love zinnias at the the morning of the first frost before they get really brown. And y'all don't have frost out there, so you don't have this. I'm going to send you some pictures. Oh my gosh, they're so pretty. They look like they're Sprinkled with sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like Elsa, you know, like in Frozen, oh, yeah. how then everything oh. gets like, it looks like Queen Elsa. And, you know, the second or third frost, then they're brown and it, it's it's done. But that, but yeah. when they first get zapped and you go out in the morning, you have to get there before the, well, the sun's on them, but just barely. If you wait mm-hmm. five minutes too long, it's melted. I'm going to send you some pictures. It's so pretty. But yeah. But I wanted to ask you then, is cyanotype then kind of a seasonal art? I mean, well, you live in Southern California, so you get sun most of the time. Yes. I live probably in the, the most ideal place to be a cyanotype artist. To be yes. Honest. It is a seasonal medium because it's so affected by like where the sun is in the sky, like the UV density, how much sunlight you have in the summer. I have hours, hours and hours in a day that I can work and expose my pieces outside. But in the winter, it's like a very small amount of time. Mm -hmm. And even the sun is so slanted that I often have to prop the pieces up. So normally you would just lay them flat under the sun. And then, you know, around noon, it's like directly over it. That's the best way to expose the piece. But in the winter, the sun is tilted uh, towards the south, right? Towards the south. And so then in order to get that same for it to be on the same plane, I have to tilt it. So I'm always very aware of what the sun is doing and the shift of the seasons. And it's really cool. Since the autumnal equinox, do you have to turn your thing a different way because the sun shifted? Yeah, maybe in January it would be, or December and January, it's more slanted. But, you know, the shift is pretty gradual. I want to hear you talk about your patronage and how you make your art sustainable for you. Yeah, so sustainability is like, it's a, I feel like it's a buzzword right now. Oh, yeah. Because like I'm like really invested in, the, in that kind of community. But it can mean so many different things, right? I, I don't know. I feel like I've heard you guys talk about that so much on this podcast. It could be yes. like the way things are grown or like the kinds of materials that you use or like, are you low waste? But I take all of those things into consideration when I think about making my business sustainable. But I think First and foremost, it has to be sustainable for me as an artist, meaning I can continue to do this for the long run, right? That I can keep coming into the studio day after day and for it to be sustainable. And I think there's another conundrum. Fine art is expensive. Like original fine art 
is expensive. And to some degree, I totally get that. I'm not really in a stage of my life where I'm buying tons of original art for my home either. For example, the average cost of a piece on my website is like $300. That's a lot, $300 to buy something to put on your wall in one sense. That's a lot of money. But if you think about also minimum wage in California right now is $16 an hour. So in order for my business, not just me, to make minimum wage, I would have to sell like a hundred like $300 pieces in a year. So is it sustainable? Could I physically make about 100 original pieces of artwork? I probably could physically make that many. But the question is, will I be able to have good, healthy boundaries in my life? And is that artwork like actually deep and meaningful in a way that actually stirs people? Or is it just a pretty thing that you're going to put on your wall? And is that sustainable? Because now we're getting into the concept of like, is the art that we put on our wall, like, is that just consumable? Is this just something we're going to, a print we buy at Target, and then once our home decor style changes, we're just going to throw it away. Mm. I had to realize, like, that's not the art I'm interested in making. I really want to create artwork that's thoughtful and really moves people and challenges them to either think differently or have hope for the future or reflect on the past and, like, actually changes them. So that's the kind of work I'm interested in making. And can I make a hundred of those pieces in a year? Well, no, the answer to that is no, for sure. And so then it's like, do I just be like, you know what? I'm a starving artist. That's the narrative that I have to be a part of. Or what I realize is, can I unearth an even older narrative than that? Which is like, artists back in the day, they're supported by patrons. That was how artists were able to live and make money. And so I realized, like, I wonder if I can create this mutually beneficial, this kind of symbiotic relationship with my collectors. So that I can continue making art sustainably for them. But not just that, a relationship that can then be beneficial to them. And so the way I decided to do that was allowing people to take the money that they would invest each month by being a patron and save that to create a down payment for artwork. So then I'm helping them invest in their future. If they're like a serious collector and they're like, yeah, I know I want this artwork, they can already save and have a down payment for it. But then also if you're like, Somebody that like me, I can't just like casually drop a couple hundred dollars whenever I feel like it. I can't make impulse purchases like that. And so at, simultaneously, it's creating a way for people to be able to be intentional with the way that they spend their money. And if they do want to invest in something like that, they can do this in the long run. So that's just one of the benefits of the patronage. And I really do hope that it can be just like this beautiful community of people. Very cool. And it's really inspiring, too, that you're doing it. I was just clicking around on it earlier a little bit. I can't really tell. It doesn't look like it's on Patreon or another platform no. like that. It looks like you've kind of built it yourself. So what does that look like for and maybe any other artists listening that might be interested in doing something similar? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, like logistically. Logistically, yes. Logistically, it's like a little bit complicated in the background, but I have a really good friend who has created this platform for me. Takes all the data from okay. Squarespace and then filters it so that people can log in and see how much they've accrued. And then, okay. um, and then also eventually if they make multiple purchases, they can see that subtracted. So they know how much of my down payment I have accrued. Part of works like a store credit. Yeah, yeah, way. yeah. Okay. So the way that it works is that patrons have a code that allows them to reserve a piece. So when a collection goes live, they type in this code, they reserved a piece. And then I send them an individual invoice, like minus their down payment. And then okay. they fulfill that. So it allows people to get the piece that they want right away, but then also like be able to apply the, the down payment that they've made. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 
I'm very interested in what you said a minute ago about the things we buy mm-hmm. and hang on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then our minds change and our mm-hmm. life situations change. And and what do we do with that? And what happens to those things? And so I'm curious about the cyanotype. The paper, can it be can it be composted or what was end of life for these pieces? Oh yeah, yeah. Something that I think is really cool about cyanotype is that it's not toxic. So unlike mm-hmm. a lot of oil paints back in the day that literally the artists go crazy or like a lot of actual dark room chemicals, if you want to develop film right now, a lot of those chemicals are toxic and you you can't you shouldn't touch the cult and things like that. Cyanotype isn't that way, which is really cool. And yeah, and it's just watercolor paper. So yeah, it can be composted eventually. That's cool. What are the chemicals? I mean, you know, you don't have to give me the fancy names or anything, but oh, okay. They don't have casual names. <laughs> I right, wrote it down so I could say them properly because I never need to talk about the actual chemical. It's ferric ammonium citrate and potassium ferrocyanide. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like an iron something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is, there's lots of iron in it, and that's what makes it blue because it's always oh, blue, which is so always magical. blue. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. like it could literally be any color. It could literally be any color, but it's just like that deep deep beautiful indigo yeah it's fascinating that it's like that indigo color yeah magical and you make an indigo vat with iron i mean that's one of the ways you can make an Mm -hmm. indigo vat so yeah must be something about iron that's fascinating so in that way in that way of thinking about art is something that ideally could be you know sustainable that we're we're not just leaving a bunch of stuff behind us that the use for it is over a certain individual and I'm I'm curious as to what are your thoughts on the role of art now in the culture at this time in particular when there's all these issues about our relationship with the planet and our stuff and our things and our objects and do you have any thoughts about art from that perspective? Yes, art in general. Yes, and I do have thoughts. I feel like though this is a really big subject and I should have a disclaimer that I'm not an anthropologist. But I am an artist that tries to think about these things. So, yeah. So I'm just going to answer this question to the best of my ability. And I think that they are good. Sure. But I think before we get to art in this culture, I think like it's helpful to think about like what is culture? Culture is just humans trying to make sense of things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is like the basis of what culture is. You know, culture isn't just like pop culture or like what's on the media. Those are that's a part of culture. But in its essence, culture is just humans making sense of things. And so that means like our role as humans are one of our fundamental identities is that we are creators. We're creators of things. And so I think somewhere along the line, we have like abdicated that role of creators, right? Most people are first and foremost consumers rather than they are creators. And we've kind of, yeah, we've abdicated that role. We're okay with, we don't need to do that. We can like trust somebody else to do that for us and we'll just consume. So that's like what culture is. But then the first cultural context, right, is our home. Nobody comes into the world in a vacuum, right? When a baby is born, they're born into a cultural context of their home, of their parents. And so then that makes the home really important for shaping culture and forming humans, right? So then that gets us to like, how do we, what do we put in our home? And the things that we put in our home matter. But since we've previously abdicated our role as creators, and we're now consumers, I think what's on our walls mirror that, right? We're talking about it. You, you get something from Target, you get pillows, the styles change and you throw them away. 
And so, yeah, yeah, that is mirroring it. And so I think art can not be that way if we if we want to choose to be creators more or if we're concerned about culture and our homes are shaping culture, then what we put in them really matters. And there are books and stuff written about how the things we put in our lives influence us. But I won't speak to that because I don't know very much about it. But what we do put on our walls, I think, is really important in the sense of like the art on our walls shapes us. So art can remind us of where we've come from. And it can also help us think of the kind of people we want to be. It simultaneously can remind us of our roots, but then also our hope from the future and then help us realize how we want to grow and change today, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Some really interesting things in there. I'm going to reflect on what you all, all that you just said about how culture is our way of kind of make it kind of contextualizing yeah. our human life in our, in our time, I mm-hmm. guess. It's kind of how I'm translating all that. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think you actually of this article I read literally this morning about, you know, Ray Dunn, the brand. Yes. It's the style. I'm sure you've seen it too, mom. It's usually white pottery found in TJ Maxx that has the word of what the thing is on it. So it would be a (laughs) bowl. Right. Or like a toothbrush holder. It's like, toothbrush yeah <laughs> you know oh yeah I, I do actually fascinating there's a whole culture around these pottery items and they have since been i'm sh- surprised to zero people a big company makes them now it used it came out of northern california this actual person named ray dunn designed oh, okay. them and used to make them and now this big company makes them and you know they're made overseas and they, apparently the quality has gone down and such but Anyways, Marshall's TJ Maxx Home Goods still stocks them and there's a culture around it and there's trade people trade and there's coveted pieces and all that. And this article is written this summer for The Cut from New York Magazine. And she sort of takes this archaeological anthropological Mm -hmm. stand like you did too. In 3023, when... You know, you're at your camp and you're you're trying to find metals to melt down for whatever. And you stumble across, you know, pottery shards and you piece them together and you find these bowls. And one says, like, keep, hold, store. <laughs> and you it's just a, it's just a funny picture of kind of where we were in 2022 and what we valued and yeah what are those shards of these objects with the word on them what does that say about us yeah Uh, and I just think like uh, that's a really funny example because it's just such a specific item but I think when you zoom out and think about that for all of our items around us Mm -hmm. because so much of what we consume and use every day is not going to be something that's going to decompose anytime soon so yeah what do these items say about us what will they be saying in god bless however long in the future that there are still humans to be looking back about us and what do the objects that we use say about us yeah interesting they'll be saying they used a lot of objects yeah (laughs) lots of objects yeah or even just think about what are some things that are common that people put on their walls like the average person right. there's the live laugh love or the image of the eiffel tower and it's like those things are bad like yeah you want to laugh and you want to love and the eiffel tower is beautiful but like uh, those things don't require us to think and it's just reflecting mm-hmm. that we're just consumers or yeah that we don't want to think 
deeply about our role in creating culture and what that means. Oh my gosh, I have to send you this article. She made a similar point to where the word, like the words on the walls and on objects is very much, it's comfortable to us because that's how we consume. So mm-hmm. Instagram and Facebook and it's the words and the caption. So like mm-hmm. the live, laugh, love thing is harkens to say an Instagram caption. So we yeah. feel good about some about a word like that on our wall because it makes us feel like we can caption something and we therefore we can consume it and we yeah. feel good about it. Yeah. Crazy. So Krista, you said a lot about slow living and your slow living journey. And so I'm going to ask you now, now that you're in this place of you found your cyanotype and you're a new mom and you have your patronage going, what do you have to say about slow living in this phase of your life? What does it mean to you right now? That's such a good question because slow living can mean a lot of things, but Like also people have said on this podcast before, slow living doesn't just mean that you're like sitting with a cup of tea on your front porch. A lot of people are like, no, I'm still, I'm still doing work. So I think in one sense, slow living is simply just choosing that identity to be a creator. But then also recently, I think something I've been realizing with a new baby, life looks a lot different now and like, yeah, much is required of mothers. And so something I've been realizing that slow living doesn't necessarily mean that you're less busy or you're doing less thing, but it's more about like, how do I give the thing that I'm doing my full attention? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's something I've been realizing lately that I can be trying to work, but my son is next to me and he's, you know, obviously wants my attention. And something I had to realize is, oh, like, I feel so chaotic when I'm trying to do all these things at the same time. I'm trying to multitask. Mm-hmm. But maybe slow living is just as simple as giving my full attention to whatever is right in front of me, one thing at a time. Yeah. What does the good dirt mean to you? Man, this is such a great question. And I've been listening to your guys' podcast, essentially, since we moved back from Japan. Since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Since pretty much. That, when I started. Pretty much since the beginning. Um, yeah, I found like you and Julia, Simply Living Well, you guys are like mm-hmm. my people. Yes, good people. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> by the way, that podcast was so good. That was like so helpful for me. Her, yeah, her podcast is good. Yes. And we had her back, both of them. Yes. Such, so good. We love her. Yay. Shout out to Julia. Yeah, Julia. You're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Everyone should go buy her books. What does the good dirt mean to me? Such a good question. And as I thought about it, I think that the good dirt is an invitation calling us back to our humanity, to partner with it and to reclaim that identity as a creator. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that as an invitation. It is. It's a- Because it's like, there's so much opportunity there. Yeah. Yes. And I love the thread we've got going here of us seeing ourselves, our humanity as creators, Mm -hmm. apart from being just consumers and Mm -hmm. what you said about abdicating that role of creating things and creating things that we need and use in our life. And industrial revolution conditioned us to think we could just go get whatever we needed. Yeah. And yeah, so let's bring it back. Not that we have to make everything, not that we have to make all of our own things now, but I think in the word creating can apply to just creating our lives, creating our days, creating how we spend our time, creating creating the moments that we want to be in and be present to and, and live. If we are creators, then if that's like our first identity, like you said, it doesn't mean we have to create everything, but I think it helps us appreciate people that are creators and appreciate mm, like yeah. ceramicists and farmers 
and all those things. There was one podcast episode, I forget which one it was, but Emma, you said by making our own things, like we can make our own luxury. That was such a helpful quote for me. At my point in life, I can't purchase the $12 sourdough loaf from my local farm, but I can make sourdough. If you have the means to Mm -hmm. invest your money or to spend on the things, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, just having that identity as a creator, I think, allows us to value other creators and then just spend our money well, invest well in the Mm -hmm. world that we want to create. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for saying that. That's really helpful for me, too, even just to have that reflected back and then also made me think, because it is It is sort of funny, right, to be like, don't consume, but you can consume these things over here. (laughs) But I think (laughs) that when you do, or I would say support, let's call it support creators and buy things from them. To me, that's creative. It feels creative to me to curate. It's the curation of items and artists that resonate with you and that you connect with. And there's a story. The intentionality. Yeah, there's a story behind what you're supporting. and. Right, mom, the intentionality. So I do think it's different. And I do think that there's something creative about buying that way. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity isn't just for artists, right? I think Mm -hmm. that's a huge, I don't know, lie that people believe. I think people believe there are people that are creative and they're not creative. And they're like, I'm just not a creative person. But creativity isn't just reserved for artists. You can do anything creatively. Like you can Mm -hmm. make spreadsheets creatively, like creative problem solving is something that everybody can use. That's what Mm -hmm. artists do is just visual creative problem solving. And so anybody can do that, which means creativity can, like you said, Emma, apply to the way that you support artists. Yay. Ah, very good. So is there anything else before we close here that you want to include in the conversation? Anything else you want to talk about or anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think maybe I'll just reiterate again. If you are somebody that is on a slow living journey, you don't have to do it all. And it's easy to focus on what you can't do. Like, I don't have a yard, so I can't grow so much of my own food. Or I don't have this or I don't have that. It's it's so easy to focus on those things and get discouraged. But if you can just focus on what you do have and making the most of that, like doing what you can with what you have, there's so much to be done there. And then just taking it one thing out of time. When I first started, I was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed by like low wage living and all those things. And it's been almost seven years. We pretty much have a plastic free home, but getting there seemed so unmanageable. I thought that, mm-hmm. that was a beautiful idea, but I was like so overwhelmed by the idea of getting there. And if you just do one thing at a time. So much can be accomplished by just little acts of faithfulness. Like That's that. <laughs> so true. I love the faithfulness, kind of believing in the in the idea of it, even if it seems so unattainable. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm going to do this little bit. And having faith that your little bit is worth something and getting you somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We have enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. You have lots of stories to tell, and it's just really fun talking to you. Yeah. This has been delightful. Thank you. Bye, Krista. Thanks for being with us. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. 
For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.